Listener Production. Hello, Antoinette Latouf here. It is May the 4th, but I will spare you the Star Wars phrase. It is a great episode of The Briefing today because Jan Fran interviews our very own Tom Tilly about his memoir, Speaking in Tongues, which is finally out today. And it's all about a part of Tom's life that he's never really spoken much about in public. It's his childhood in a hardline Pentecostal church. It was about a year and a half later when I received. And so there were many times in between where I'd go to these meetings and be disappointed. Were you like, please, 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 Holy Spirit, come to me? And you get this, I'd get this sort of like feeling in my chest, like, I think it's, I think it's happening. I think the Spirit's going to rise up through and I'm going to have this physical sensation. And then it would sort of die down. You'd be like, ah. So as the book explains, Tom had doubts about the church from a pretty early age and they never really went away. So you'll hear part one of this two-part interview with Jan Fran after the headlines and Tom's out in bookstores launching it today. So Annika Smithhurst and I are here to bring you today's news. Annika, it seems that the briefing team not only love the news, but we like to write books and birth babies too. (laughs) Yeah, if you're not writing a book, you're having a baby. Uh, Basically, they are the two options, or you can do both, um, as I did. Do not recommend. Uh, I see you've actually got a book out too in keeping with this theme, an anti-racism guide of how to lose friends and influence white people. Tell us a little bit about it. I won't go too much into it because um, Jamila and I have a great chat and um, it will be on the weekend briefing. Yeah, but it's not a memoir. It's a bit of a guide. And if you're game enough, like for Mother's Day, you can be, hey, mum, here's a book on how to be less of a racist. (laughs) Love it. Interest rates have increased for the first time in 12 years in an attempt to curb rising inflation. It's gone up to 0.35% from its historic low of 0.1%. I acknowledge that the increase in interest rates comes earlier than the guidance that the bank was providing during the dark days of the pandemic. That's RBA Governor Philip Lowe there. Look, he also warned borrowers the rate could eventually reach to 2.5%. So far, the Commonwealth Bank, ANZ and Westpac have already said they will pass on the full rate rise and the NAB will announce its decision this morning. This means for an average Australian mortgage on a variable rate, the hike will add around $78 a month, but that number could push repayments up by more than $600 a month this time next year if the cash rate hits that predicted 2%. Prime Minister Scott Morrison has fended off criticism that this is damning news for him so close to an election. Has your government just lost this election? Of course not. Labor's reaction is that following the coalition's decade in government, inflation, low wages and now higher interest rates are evidence of economic mismanagement. Scott Morrison's economic credibility was already tattered and now it is completely shredded. That's Shadow Treasurer Jim Chalmers there. So, Annika, is it, in your opinion, is it damning so close to the election for Scott Morrison? Look, it's not great. <laughs> uh, usually there is a perception that the coalition are better at managing these things. So there is a chance that maybe people go, oh, things are going up, stick with what you know. But I think it's more likely that after 10 years they go, this isn't right, this is, you know, going to cost me more and the government haven't been able to do anything about it. Now, there is a disclaimer there. Anthony Albanese has acknowledged that interest rates will inevitably rise even if Labor win later in the month. But 
it doesn't really matter. Politics is about perception and I think a lot of people will be living a bit tighter now after interest rates go up and the banks follow. And that really is going to sort of be a big reminder when people go to the ballot box over the next couple of weeks when polls open soon. That will occur regardless of who is in government. Under your watch then, would it not be a whammy if interest rates rise? Under our watch, what we have is a plan to reduce costs of living on working families. But it is the first rate rise to occur during an election campaign since 2007. Then rates were at an 11-year high, not a record low, and in that case, John Howard lost the election. Annika, when we talk about interest rate rises, of course, everybody thinks about homeowners, but around one in four... Aussies don't own their own home. So this would be good news for them because with interest rate rises, that should help with inflation and the cost of goods and services start to decrease. So it's, you know, not bad news for everybody. That is true. I'm only a recent homeowner and I remember that's how I used to think. But look, I guess um, the big sort of voting block, I I think, are always older Australians, Mm. often people who own homes. Young people, unfortunately, as we can clearly tell from some elections in the past, don't always have a bigger sway. But you would have to think with more young people not being able to get into the housing market that hopefully it becomes an important issue soon. Well, I reckon it'll probably become an important issue because even these boomers who have their home and their investment property that they're negative gearing, they also have their 35-year-old who's not moving out of home. Mm. (laughs) So if that doesn't make them vote, (laughs) vote them out of the house, I don't know what will. A 50-year-old US federal law guaranteeing the right to abortion could be overturned. The draft Supreme Court ruling would strike down the 1973 Roe v. Wade case and would see abortion become a state issue. And that's been leaked to news website Politico on Monday. If it becomes a law and if what is written is what remains, it goes far beyond the concern of whether or not there is the right to choose. President Joe Biden then, he warns that if this is handed down, the ruling could jeopardise other rights, including same-sex marriage and access to contraception. As many as 26 states are expected to enact partial or total abortion bans if Roe fails. That's half the country. So in addition to the conservative justice behind the push, four other Republican-appointed justices all support the move, but it's important to note that it is still just a draft. The final opinion in this case is not expected to be published until late June and an investigation into the leak has also been launched. So the majority seem to support this draft because it's my understanding, Annika, that it's a Conservative justice who's behind it and then there are four Republicans that so far have shown support Republican-appointed justices, I might add, who so far have indicated they appointed and that's out of nine. So, you know, that's a five out of nine that's a majority. You know, I'm not great at maths, but I know that to be a majority. So yeah, it would seem that there are more people um, in positions of power in favour of it rather than not. And incredibly, this is always a huge election issue in the US. Rarely does it pop up in Australia. Mm. Um, But even Joe Biden, a lifelong Catholic, has said he's personally opposed to abortion because of his faith, but he doesn't believe his views should be imposed on the rest of society. Now that's Not often the case when polls are taken in the US. Often it is really one of the most, I guess, important issues for a lot of people when they do go and vote. So an incredibly big story coming out of the US at the moment. 
UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson has become the first world leader to address Ukraine's parliament since Russia invaded, borrowing some words from Winston Churchill. The so-called irresistible force of Putin's war machine has broken on the immovable object of Ukrainian patriotism and love of country. This is Ukraine's finest hour. The British government has promised another $527 million in military aid. Meantime, Russia has renewed its attacks on the steelworks plant in Mariupol, where 200 civilians are still trapped. The Russian military is trying to storm the facility after claiming Ukrainians broke the terms of a ceasefire and took up new positions as 127 civilians were evacuated earlier in the week. Now, those civilians have now arrived in a Ukrainian-controlled city 230 kilometres northwest of Mariupol. Thanks, Annika. So that's it for us. So Jan Fran is about to go deep with Tom Tilly about his new book, Speaking in Tongues, which very excitedly comes out today. So, Tom, I have been wanting to chat to you about your book because I've known you for, um, what, like 10 years, 10? Yeah, more, Longer. Yeah. 15 years. And <laughs> the resounding image that I have of you is one at a rave where you're drenched <laughs> in sweat <laughs> and you're very inebriated. <laughs> Put it that way, which is a very different image to this image of you on your knees praying for salvation from the mm. Lord, which is an image that comes through in your book, your very first memoir. So I kind of want to dig into what are these two different Toms? Where do they come from? How did you end up here, right? And I guess I sort of want to start at the very beginning. So talk us through growing up in the church, Mm. growing up in country Australia and what your childhood was like. Okay, so I was born in Dubbo and I was born into this church called the Revival Centres and my parents joined that church just a few years before I was born. So mum was in her mid-20s, dad was around about the age of 30. And so they made this decision to join what was a fairly fairly unusual church. And then they started having children and I was the first born. What made this church different was it was really focused on speaking in tongues, which is this spiritual practice and the name of the book. And it's basically where you start speaking in an unknown language as a way of connecting more directly with God. So Mm -hmm. instead of sort of down on your knees saying Hail Marys or whatever you say when you're a Catholic, for example, you sort of go into this free-form, disassociated, um, random syllables, new language that's meant to be a direct connection. And our church believed that you had to have that experience in order to have salvation, to be saved and going to heaven. Mm -hmm. So that was just like this omnipresent kind of truth in our world. You just had that ingrained from essentially from when you were born, from a very young age, that this had to happen for you to go to heaven and really connect fully with God. That was always there for you from the beginning. I mean, I don't know at which age I truly understood that, but Mm. probably by around six, seven Eight, I definitely understood that. But, you know, that's not what you're really taking notice of when you're like three, four, five. You're just like, oh, we go to this church two or three times a week. We have all these great friends here. We play out the back. Then we come in for serious time. We sleep in our sleeping bags on Wednesday nights at the meeting while the adults are talking. And you're just sort of in this 
flow of childhood and it was actually a really beautiful childhood. You know, the hall was opposite the Macquarie River in Dubbo. It's this beautiful country town with a great sense of community and adventure out on the rivers and, mm. yeah, we had it all this It sounds fun. idyllic from the way you write it in the book. Yeah. You know, very outdoorsy, you played sport, you have three brothers in relatively close succession to you. I think your second brother was just a year and a half younger mm. than you, so you always had people around you. Yeah. You're always out and about. There was a real strong community vibe. Yeah, it was a hyper-social upbringing. About three times a week we were doing fully organised activities with lots of people and mm. lots of friends and then there were other nights we were doing other things and people dropping into your house every day, plus all your school life as well, which was a, you know, a whole other side to your community. And I sort of had two worlds in a way. Yeah. I mean, there was a little bit of tension of you being at school and, you know, not really wanting to talk about being part of the church and the speaking in tongues and kind of just tr- trying to lay low throughout primary school and high school. Yeah. I sort of developed a sense as early as probably year one or two, that we had a slightly different way of living to everyone else. Mm. And we believed it was a better way of living. That's what we were told as we were growing up, that we had this special thing going on, that we were part of this spirit-filled community that was going to heaven, that did all these fun things, whereas um, our friends sort of lived, you know, relatively normal lives of school, sport, work, family. But we had this sort of other dimension, so we saw that as a good thing. I remembered in writing the book and sort of so sitting down, like really putting all this stuff down, I was able to see things more clearly and I was able to pinpoint the first moment I kind of lied about it. Mm. And so we moved to the next town when I was seven because dad had been elevated up the hierarchy of the church. He'd gone from regular member to leader of a house meeting group, like a midweek group to becoming the pastor of a new branch. So we started a new branch in Mudgee and that's actually why we moved to Mudgee. But when I went to the classroom for the first time, they're like, oh, why have you guys come to town? It's like, oh, dad got a job here. (laughs) Yeah, not untrue, (laughs) even though I don't think he was being paid to be a pastor. Yeah. Um, So this whole time you're sort of, you know, you're still a kid and you're Mm. kind of waiting for this moment to happen where you, as you call it in the book, receive the Holy Spirit. Mm. Is that right? Yep. So talk us through what the waiting for that moment is like and then what it's like when it does finally happen. So it was years in the making. So it was about um, the age of six or seven when we started having these seekers meetings where the kids would sort of be taken off to a room or a, a log near a campsite or some sort of quiet location to get down on our knees and pray. And we were sort of coached through this process where you would repeat hallelujah lots of times, maybe jump in with some other words, praise the Lord, or please give me your Holy Spirit. And you sort of get in this repetitive pattern. And then at some stage you were told that God would move in you and give you this gift and your tongue would loosen up and suddenly you'd burst out in this other language. And so we'd always at church meetings hear the parents, the uncles and aunties, our own parents. um, That's what we called all the other parents, uncles and aunties. Mm. We heard their stories of, oh, I had this life-changing moment and I had this well of power and emotion rush up through my whole body, from my toes, up through my spine, out through my fingers, and I spoke out in another language. So we'd, we'd hear all these wild stories of these spiritual experiences people were having when they spoke in tongues. So we were like, oh, is that what it's going to be like for us? Or 
will it not be as intense because we're not kind of having this big life turnaround moment because we're only seven? Yeah, yep. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say, yep. So you're there kind of waiting and then my little brother, Sam, he received first. He was seven. Mm-hmm. And you would have been about nine or something. Yeah, like that. and I'm like, hey, what's what's going on here? He's he's naughtier than me. Why is he getting the Holy Spirit now? And I was like, and and another question: Does he really have it? Mm-hmm. So I was skeptical because he was my little brother, and yeah. yeah. And I mean, could could you feasibly be making it up as a child? Like, could yes. you say, oh yeah, Dad, I think uh, the Holy Spirit listen came to, to me. Yeah. yeah, listen to me speaking essentially gibberish. I don't mean that yeah. in a derogatory way, but a language that. No one else can really understand. Yeah. And so when he received, I was a little bit skeptical, but there was no room for questioning it. Like if I'd said, oh, dad, I'm not sure about Sam speaking in tongues, that would have been very bad because it sort of undermined the credibility of the whole thing. So it was about a year and a half later when I received. And so there are many times in between where I'd go to these meetings and be disappointed were you like, please, 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 Holy Spirit, come to me? And you get this, I'd get this sort of like feeling in my chest, like I think it's, I think it's happening. I think the Spirit's going to rise up through and I'm going to have this physical sensation and then it would sort of die down. You'd be like, oh, God hasn't decided that I'm, I'm ready for this. Maybe it's something, maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe my attitude's wrong. Maybe I'm too proud or maybe I'm too self-conscious or mm. maybe I was bad at school last week. Maybe I'm not truly giving my heart. There was all these phrases and coded language, which I hope you kind of pick up in the book. That there's these terms that sort of look like you know what they mean, but you're not sure. And our, our world was full of these terms. Mm. Eventually it did happen though. You did, well, you did speak in tongues as a young child. What was that moment like? Yeah, so I was at this kids camp. Um, so the church bought this old scouts camp down in Maria, down on the far south coast, this beautiful hillside overlooking an estuary. And we went there for Christmas camps and we went there for kids' camps mid-year. And so, yeah, I was in the dorm room one night after a busy day of activities and bushwalks and washing dishes and arts and crafts. And yeah, I felt like something, there was this combination of this warm feeling inside me and my, my tongue sort of shifting from repeating hallelujah into a much more simplified version of that. And if you, if you get the audio book, you're going to hear me recreating <laughs> well, it. Well, I was just going to ask you because I read it in the book and I have an idea of what it sounds like. What did it sound like? Uh, I kind of don't feel like doing it again okay. right here All right. on okay. the briefing podcast where I work every day. Sure, yeah. Um, I thought I had the moment. I, I was a little bit unsure, but I, I thought something happened. And so, yeah, I went back to my dad and showed him how it sounded one night in, in bed. Dad, I think I've received. And he goes, I think you have too. And then it sort of becomes official and word spreads. Tom's received. He's part of the church. He'll now be baptized. And then I was in that baptism tank at 10 going, I think it's, I think it's real. There was always doubt there, though, even from when you say that you saw your brother receive, there was a seed of doubt that's like, has he? And then when you received, there was also that, like you're just saying it, I think it's real. Mm. Where did that spark of doubt come from? And why did you have it, but not your brother, who was just a year and a half younger than you, grew up in the same family, same community? Where did it come from? I don't know. I'm not sure if it's because objectively there are reasonable questions about this practice or whether I'm just a different personality type. I sort of really talk a lot about my brother Sam in this book because 
he was right there throughout my whole life, except for the first 18 months. And we just had a completely different take on things. He never questioned it. I called him when I finished, almost finished writing the book and just checked in with him on a few of these moments. And he remembered all the same moments, Mm -hmm. but he read them differently. Mm -hmm. And I was someone that questioned things. I was someone that needed to understand things. Even my mum was different with the way she handled the church. She could just go with the flow and live things. All the principles didn't have to line up. But for me, it all had to make sense. I questioned and sort of sussed things out until they did, which caused me a whole lot of trouble. Well, that's the thing, because you couldn't really have a lot of doubt in the church. It was ubiquitous in your life, within your family, within your relationships, Mm. with your first girlfriend. How did that work when the doubts not only set in but started growing over time? Like how did you navigate that in a place where you just couldn't doubt? Yeah, well, such a hardline church. It was all binary. You know, you were saved or you you weren't. Yeah. You were going to heaven or you weren't. You're in the church or you were right out of the church, potentially excommunicated. So I knew people that got kicked out as a teenager. I knew that that meant you were cast away. So well, I think someone got kicked out for... Getting a blowjob. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't know how to say that, but so I've just come out and say that because that was completely against the rules and you could be excommunicated for, I'm doing air quotes, fornication. Yeah, for life. For life. Yeah. And so this kid who was in high school, yeah, he was kicked out. Yeah. And that was pretty heavy for us and we mm. didn't know how to react. We sort of stayed friends with him, but we weren't really allowed to. God, that must have just been the most guilty blowjob you've ever received <laughs> in your life if you were that kid. I don't, want to, I don't want to dwell on the point too much. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he paid a price for that blowjob. Yeah, so but you seeing things like that, thinking, but I just want to live my life. I just want to be a normal person, but yeah. I'm so terrified of being excommunicated forever. Yeah. But I wasn't really rebellious, so I was kind of fine with most of it. Like, I, I wanted to save myself for marriage. I thought that was a beautiful idea. I didn't want to get married and go, oh, this is how I saw it at the time oh, I have to let you know that I have slept with this person, this person, and this person, and I hope that doesn't weaken the beauty of what's about to happen for us on our night of matrimony, you know? That's how I saw the world. And alcohol didn't look that appealing either. I saw my mates getting hammered and turning up to school socials with this dopey look in their eyes. I was like, yuck. So I was kind of up for it, but I had this doubt about the core experience. And most of the time I just pushed that away and went with the flow, this dual life of... Mm. um, making it work at church, doing what I needed to do, but also just trying to be normal at school, playing sport, all that kind of stuff. And um, it wasn't until I left home and I had way more time to myself because I had such a busy social childhood. I never had time alone. So when I got lonely for the first time at uni in Sydney, then I started to think. And I also became part of the Sydney branch of the church, which was way stricter. See, my dad was the pastor in Mudgee and he gave us lots more freedom. Right. But when I hit the Sydney thing, I had to play by all the same rules as everyone else. And I also had more time to sort of think about it, get lonely. And I was also sort of boxed into my first relationship, which sort of tied you in with a lot more of the rules and control because you were accountable to someone else. She was in the church as well, yeah. we, should, we should mention. Had to be, that was the rule. Yeah. So you get to Sydney and that's this sort of profound time for you where Mm. you have some time alone and you're really thinking about things. You're in this environment where things are even more strict. Which is why at that point I wanted this experience to feel more real than ever. So at that point I sort of, I made a confession to God and there's this moment I write about in the book where I go to this waterfall near Pittwater. I'm standing there in this beautiful environment going, all right, God, maybe I haven't received. Maybe I've been 
just playing along all these years. Mm. But I want it now. Like I really, I need something now because this is not making sense for me really anymore. I don't know how this works. Give me this like powerful experience, then it can all make sense. We're chatting to Tom about his brand new first ever memoir, Speaking in Tongues. Here it is. By the time you're seeing this, it's probably going to be out. So go and grab it. You're just on the precipice of leaving the church. And that's where we're going to leave our chat for today. But we're going to come back tomorrow with the second half of this story to find out what happens, where it goes and how you made the decisions that you made and how you've ended up being the Tom Tilly that I know and see at raves, (laughs) drenched in sweat. Not for a few years. It's been a little while. Yeah, it has. And let's just remember you met your husband at that rave. Okay, this isn't about me. It's about you, mate. Listener.